You're listening to Mining the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 4, Social Networks. So when people talk about social networks today, they usually mean online social media, things like Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat. And it seems that people are using online social networks more and more, which begs the question, does this mean they're using face-to-face social networks less and less? So let's start with the basics. So what does it mean to say that humans are social animals? Most of humans' evolutionary history was spent in relatively small groups of about 150 people, and their very survival depended on getting along with those people in that group. Collecting food and protection when you're sleeping and everything else uh, crucially depended on having decent relationships with and really understanding the group that you were uh, involved with. Um, Not to mention reproduction for sexually reproducing creatures like human beings does require somebody else. So you need to be able to usually get along with someone to uh, reproduce. And so we evolved to pay a lot of attention to other people. We crave social interaction and social information. um, And it's really not any different today. In fact, we might even be more dependent on other people today in industrialized societies. We don't grow our own food. We rely on other people for jobs and for uh, delivery and uh, huge financial institutions. Um, And so it is really important um, then and now to um, really pay close attention and to understand our social environment. And so we uh, have this tendency to pay a lot of close attention to it. So are all animals like this? Not all animals. Some animals are... Um, very uh, solitary. There are some very social animals, but um, even like if you look at the great apes, the orangutan is mostly a solitary animal. I I remember I took a comparative psychology class with Terry Maple, who was the director of Zoo Atlanta, and he said that there was... um, He once had a bunch of people protesting because the orangutan was being kept alone in in an enclosure, and he was trying to explain to them that orangutans are actually solitary in the wild. <laughs> but, you know, we, we assume that right, you know, they're, they're also going to be uh, social creatures. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the, you know, some animals are, are very solitary and others are social. And the social ones do need to be around others. So given that we are so socially focused, we're focused on humans, does this social ex- obsession really affect how we see the world? It does. We, we see other things as people, a shocking amount. There's a really neat book called The Media Equation, by some scientists named Reeves and Nas, and they they just basically replicated a whole ton of psychology studies, like social psychology studies, with computers. And what I mean by that is they would do things like, uh, well, people are liked better if they compliment you. So they made a spell checker that would not just tell you that you got words wrong, but would say, hey, you spelled this word right. That's a really hard word. And people, (laughs) not only did they like the spell checker better, but they thought it caught more errors, right? And and they did another one where they had... um, another spell checker experiment where they had a bunch of computers in a room and they, they just tied a blue band around your arm and then they put a blue band around one of the monitors and like a red band around a different monitor and you're supposed to use this basically the same program on all the different monitors but they said, so you're on the blue team yeah. and that computer's on the red team and they thought that the software on the computer with the blue was, was a better piece of software. So it, we can't really help but project our social understanding and, and how we relate to other people 
to uh, inanimate things. So yeah, it really does kind of permeate our whole way of thinking. And isn't there that whole thing, like, this is why we see the man and the moon, too, right? So, like, when you look up at the moon, there yeah. really isn't a, a face there, right? But we're, we are so attuned to seeing, I guess, not just social structures but and teams, but also human faces, right? Yeah, and we got a specialized part of our brain for faces, and yes. babies will attend to faces right out of the womb. And, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll often see um, faces in things that uh, aren't human faces. And what's really interesting, and we all know that, but what's really interesting is that we don't usually do the opposite, right? So you can cut um, you can cut a green pepper in half, and sometimes you can look and say, oh, it looks kind of like a face. But you never look at somebody's face and say, hey, it looks like half a green pepper, <laughs> right? You don't ever, you don't ever like, look at some, oh, Kim, your face looks like a cloud. <laughs> it's always the other way around, right? You yeah, mistake yeah. those things uh, in the other way. And yeah. that is probably inborn, and, and one of the reasons we think that is because uh, kids are do this more than adults. So if this were like a, a, a result of culture, you'd think that it would get greater over time as you get more enculturated. But actually kids uh, are much more, they see animacy in everything. They think the sun came out so that it would warm them up, you know, and, it's, right. and it's, it's, as they get older, they start to um, lose those kind of things. Well, I've even noticed in, in my kids' children's books, there's often imagery of like moons and... Uh, like yeah, they all the got a face, right? Yeah, and, and even with animals speaking mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. having social interactions with humans, like very rarely do you see kids' stories that don't have some kind of centrality around those themes. Yeah, so, we, so those stories play to that, that tendency that kids have. But the other thing to note is that, you know, even as like hard-headed scientific adults, we don't have any trouble understanding that. Right. Like it's not like yeah. we say, what do you mean the sun, the sun has a face and is happy? Well, that doesn't make any sense. It's a ball of gas. We, we <laughs> might know that it's impossible, but we still can follow the story and, and it makes sense mm. to us. That's interesting. The, but the fact that we're so wired for other people, uh, the downside is that if we don't get interaction, we can, we can suffer. Right. So does social interaction and, or lack of it affect our health? It does. So it, it, it causes psychological suffering in that you just feel yeah. lonely, which is not good. And as you've talked about, you know, uh, on the stress episode, it, it does cause a stress response, which isn't good for you. Um, we also have a lot of examples of prolonged isolation causing mental breakdown and this kind of thing. It's one of the few things you can do to a prisoner that they really hate. You put them in solitary confinement. And that is coming under increased criticism because it causes mental breakdown and, uh, you know, it is it is kind of like a form of torture. That's how much we need it. But, you know, in general, though, um, there's some very interesting studies that just sort of look at all the factors that can affect longevity. Longevity is how long you're going to live. You know, so when I, if you were to ask somebody, what do you, you think is the most important factor in how long you live? They'd probably say something like, what they eat or, you know, how healthy behaviors and whether or not they smoke and, and drink and stuff. Um, but the, the, the studies I've seen that, that try to take all that into account find that your social interaction is actually the most important thing. So having a, a close network of friends that you see face-to-face -face is actually the biggest predictor of living a long time, even more than quitting smoking or uh, avoiding obesity or eating healthful foods. But then, so what about people who are introverted who naturally prefer to be by themselves? Yeah, introversion and extroversion is one of the main uh, personality traits. The personality psychologists break up personality into five or six, depending on what theory you like, different um, major factors. And one of them is this introversion, extroversion. And um, 
extroverted people like to be around other people more and introverts prefer their time alone a little bit more. Um, but it's important to note uh, that most people are in the middle. You know, this mm. is it's it's popular to be like, oh, are you an introvert or an extrovert? As though they're just two kinds of people. But it's it's uh, it's normally distributed as most psychological things are. Most people are in the middle. Um, and it is interestingly different from shyness. So you can be an extrovert who's shy. You just have a little bit of anxiety about talking to other people, but you really want to be around other people. And you can be an introvert who's not shy. <laughs> you just don't prefer to do it. Um, but there was a study done right here at Carleton by a psychologist named John Zelensky. And he found that you can ask introverts to act like extroverts. How do you do that? You just tell them, you just say, okay, in this situation, I want you to act like as though you were an extrovert. Be, just talk to people and... Isn't that immensely stressful for an introvert? Well, they don't prefer it, but they get happier. What? Well, extroverts are happier than introverts in general. I mean, that might be partially because our culture is very (laughs) extrovert-focused, but he did find... So this is just to say that if you're an introvert, you still need other people. It just takes a lot more effort and energy to get it. Well, I just finished reading a book called The Stranger in the Woods. Have Mm, you heard about it? About the last uh, hermit. But a man it's who... It's a true story? Yeah, it's a true story who, uh, at, I can't remember what age, like 18, 19, he decided to abandon civilization and he ended up living in his self-made little um, camping ground in the woods of Maine. And he wasn't found for something like 20 plus years. Uh, and it was truly unusual because he literally ne- had almost zero interactions with other humans in that time period. And he, in fact, described how uncomfortable it was for him to to interact with others. And this is part of the driving reason why he decided to become a hermit. But, it, I mean, the story is compelling because I think it speaks to the fact that we, we as individuals and as humans are so compelled to interact mm-hmm. with others, right? So I think he is obviously a somebody that would be considered a net liar to all of this. So he was happier being He was much happier being by himself. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, back to this idea about, you know, the idea of the fact that we're more in online social environments, right? So do online social networks actually lead to the same benefits as face-to-face? Well, it feels like it, doesn't it? Like, it, it seems like when you are, you know, maybe feeling a little lonely you might get online and see what your friends are doing. But the studies show that it doesn't work. And these online social networks that people are spending more and more time on, um, although they feel like you're getting valuable social interaction, you're actually not. And those same benefits don't carry over. Um, there, there was an interesting study where they brought in a bunch of girls. This is kind of mean. But they brought in a bunch of girls and had them do difficult math and word problems in front of an audience. Very stressful situation. And then afterward, they had different groups where their mothers would um, either phone them or uh, send a text, like a supportive text message, uh, or some people would talk to their mothers face-to-face. And the phone and the face-to-face lowered their stress levels, Hmm. but the text did nothing. Really? Yeah. Why? Why not? I don't think we really know. I I haven't seen a good description. I mean, it's... Probably something to do with the richness of the interaction. You know, there's a lot of um, nonverbal stuff yeah, that well, we get. And uh, when you're like, yeah, the nonverbal, like you can see my eyes giving you some other 
indications as to like even the tone of voice, like your emotional residence, which on the phone, that's probably you why get it on the phone. Yeah, you get it on the phone. But um, yeah, it reminds me of, I think they've done studies where they've looked at blood pressure and heart rate mm-hmm. where people have been like, imagine going to a music confer- uh, concert and you're seeing like your absolute favorite person, mm-hmm. like Taylor Swift, right? And you're right in front of them and your heart rate is like through the roof. You're yeah. so excited versus seeing them on TV, right? Mm. There's, there's that, you don't get the same effects. So it kind of reminds me of those, those studies. So. Yeah. Although I did just read yeah. a, uh, about a study today that showed that people who get only audio are better at empathy than the people who have oh boy. The, the, the face-to-face. Science is but never yeah, straightforward. We have to figure that one out. But, you know, if you think about your, um, your interactions on Facebook and your friends there. So we, you know, we actually have a lot of, you know, a lot of people have many, many friends on Facebook and they're called friends and you, they kind of feel like friends. But if you think about a lot of those people you interact with, you know, and the people you interact with on Facebook a lot might be more of a function of how much they're active on Facebook and not how much you actually right. have in common with them. You know, you think about, well, it, would they really help me and, and would they do any self-sacrifice if I really needed help? Like, would they lend me money or let me stay in their house? And that's when you, you know, that you can start to see the difference between like a real, what a real face-to-face friend is versus just like a, a Facebook friend. Well, I always think it's clever how Facebook used the word friend. Yeah. Right? And now they have now followers, right? For people who like you follow a celebrity or something. Mm-hmm. Just the very description of those terms in, in, in a friend, it insinuates some sort of close companionship versus a follower not in the same way, right? Yeah, and so I think Facebook really started out wanting it that way. I yeah. mean, I remember early in Facebook, it, you would try to add someone as a friend and they would say, how do you know them? And if you answered with, I don't know them, it would not let you friend them. It would say, why are you, fr- then why are you yeah. friending this person? <laughs> but they got rid of that. <laughs> yeah, because they realized that it was limiting their, probably limiting their scope. Right. So, so why, do, if, if it's not as good, so if we get text messages, you don't get the same lo- degree of stress relief, for example, or... You're not getting the same deepness. Why, then why are we doing it? What's compelling us to keep on social media? Well, it, people certainly are doing it. And social media is huge. And it's, it's gone up over 50% since 2008 wow. um, in a study of uh, 12th graders. So, you know, I, I think that it has some of the superficial... Um, characteristics of a social interaction and that makes it attractive. I, I kind of relate it to junk food. Junk food, we, we are drawn to it and it tastes good because it, remi- it, it tricks our bodies into thinking that it's something that's really valuable and nutritious. Um, high calorie, uh, high sugar and fat things um, in moderation are very nutritious. Now we have a lot of them and so I, I like to think of social networks kind of like the junk food of the socializing. They taste good to your mind, but they don't have the same nutrition. Yeah, and that's, I think I'm going to, we're going to have a whole show on whether social networks, social media is addictive, right? And oh, yeah. Fo- like on that same principle, exactly. Yeah, and you know, it's also a lot easier to get on social networks than to have a, f- a face-to-face interaction. So um, my wife and I, we're quite social and we're, we always want to have people over and this and that, but I have to admit, it's a lot of work. People are very busy, you got to plan three weeks in advance, and you know, it's delayed gratification. So you have to like go through this big rigmarole of scheduling something to get the interaction two weeks later, as opposed to you just pull your phone out while you're lying on the couch 
and you can get some interaction. So it's kind of like why you know watching TV is easier than writing a novel. It's just a you know it's a lower threshold to get involved, and it gives you a little bit of gratification really quick. Um, even though in the long run it's not as valuable. It's probably why movie theaters are struggling too, right? We've got Netflix. We don't have to leave our front door. Yeah, the technology for consuming TV. Well, mm. TV's gotten better. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and also the technology for watching it, like being in home theaters, is you know it's so good now that yeah, I can understand the movies are having trouble. So is social media bad for you? Are social media bad for you? It's interesting. There are a lot of studies, and many of them are correlative. And what I mean by that is that they'll show that people who spend more time online are not as happy. Um, but you've got to be careful with studies like that because it might be that hmm. they're, uh, they're, 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 they're on, online a lot because they are unhappy. So depression hmm. is, has, a, I think, a couple of positive feedback loops, right? So, like, when you're depressed, you don't want to be around people, which makes you more depressed. Right. And, you know, so it might be one of those things. Uh, and it might not be that being online causes um, a bad experience. But they have done some, study, some studies where they have intervened um, and they assign people to give up Facebook, for example, um, or to use it like normal or use it more. Uh, and they did find that people who gave up Facebook for a week, they ended that time in a happier state than everybody else. They were less lonely and le less lonely, which is interesting. That is you interesting. You cut out Facebook, they're less lonely, less depressed. Um, and uh, people who some people are required to give up Facebook for their jobs, and they were happier than people who got to keep their their accounts, uh, and they're just a whole. There are a whole lot of um, longitudinal studies. When a longitudinal study is when you look at the same people over the time, uh, and in this way you can see how their happiness changes over time, and if it it tracks uh, screen time and which one came first, um, and they and that shows that indeed, like having more time in front of screens. This is all kinds of stuff like video games, movies, and social networks. Um, seems to lead to less happiness, but the opposite isn't true. Meaning, if you get unhappy because something, you know, you get sick or somebody dies or whatever, you don't end up spending more time. So, the, so there is there are some indications that the causal direction is more screen stuff, more online stuff leads to these bad effects. Yeah, and I know there's all these. Um, I remember your comments on upward and downward comparisons like people seeing like Facebook lives that are full of holidays and ha you know like people tend to post things that are more positive so there's that tendency like when you're scrolling through like your Instagram or your fa Facebook and you're seeing all these people having these amazing lives to like reflect back and they go oh, you know mm -hmm. I didn't get to go on holiday this year right so kind of <laughs> fulfilling those kinds of notions so <laughs> Like, social media is just one kind of online experience. Are all online experiences potentially similarly bad? Yeah, this is an interesting question in a couple of ways. One is that we have a big variety of online experiences right now. Uh, and the other is that we have the future of online experiences, which could be who knows what, right? We could have really deep, immersive virtual reality um, with tactile stuff. Like, maybe at some point... Mm. Um, like now we have video phones, right? Like we used to just have phones. Now we can have Skype and, and, and FaceTime. And, you know, maybe someday it'll really seem like somebody's in the room. But for right now, it really does seem uh, that, you know, if you just look at like screen time in general, it does have this effect. But that, that, those are based on averages, right? So it could be that certain things um, are not as bad for you or are actually good for you. 
Uh, but it does seem that uh, more screen time uh, leads to less happiness. You know, a lot of people play video games with other people in the room. Mm. And that that is very, I mean, watching like a sports game it, with a bunch of friends and talking about it and everything is a very different experience from just holding up and binging on a TV show by yourself. Yeah, it seems um, like that socialization piece is really crucial, right? Like if you're at home by yourself versus like, like you say, playing MMOs yeah. with... Well, even cooking can be a very solitary activity. You know, it's like, yeah. uh, it, it's... Um, but another thing is that at all, every minute you spend doing an online thing alone is time you're not spending hmm. with somebody else. So, you know, they have done studies where you track for like every email you send or receive, it, there's a measurable amount of detriment to your face-to-face interactions with people. Right, so it's opportunity cost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the opportunity cost. What, what could you be doing right. when you're not online? So should we be online at all? Yeah. So, you know, it's uh, – and, and I'm, I'm certainly not somebody who issues uh, all social media. But interestingly, a study did show that people who don't use it at all are less happy. So it looks like there's a sweet spot. It looks like there's a moderation kind of mm. thing. But it looks like if you use it just a little bit, uh, you'll be pretty happy. But – uh, your happiness gets steadily lower as you add more hours of use. So um, in a study of teens, this limited amount of time seemed to predict um, happiness. And a lot of people who use social media, for example, and are happy, use social media to augment their face-to-face interactions. So they will, hey, let's go to this concert together. Hey, let's come over. Hey, let's do a phone call. And it's not a replacement for, but it is a medium to facilitate uh, social interaction. So that's that's the way I think that it's it's best used, um, and that you know for social media that means arranging uh, social events. But but for like even for like watching TV or video games, if you can do it with people, you know that's a, a great way to do it. Well, I have an amazing group chat going on on Facebook with some girlfriends that we all do um, Fit Mom Boot Camp together, and uh, we use it to share stories, but also plan when we're next going to go out for a drink or get together. So I see that because I, I feel like it amplifies my face-to-face interactions with these women. It's just an extension of that almost, but not a replacement. Yeah. And even like old social networks, um, like back in the days before the web, when we had like, uh, not like news groups, but like these hubs or whatever, uh, yeah. you know, the ones that really lasted were ones that were supplemented by, they were like geographically located and they were supplemented by occasional parties or get togethers, you know, to, to, to help cement those social bonds. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of my experiences, I, I do notice that there, there seems to be more women online on certain tools like Pinterest and, you know, for a while, like Instagram, which I think now has been pretty equal, uh, equally gender representative. So, but are there gender differences in how people act online? Yeah, well, there are, gen- there are gender differences in social interaction in general, too. And I think that that has manifestations online. Um, women are, they seem to be better at reaching out to their friends when they need some kind of a help. Um, and this you know, who knows why, but, you know, there certainly seems to be a, a cultural thing that men are, you know, have less opportunity to be vulnerable or whatever. Um, but, for example, getting getting better when you're sick, like being around other people actually does help. And, I mean, I read about this study uh, a short time after I was hospitalized. And I remember in my hospital room, uh, it's kind of amazing now, like, because the hospital has 
I was in the hospital for like four days and I had internet and I had my computer, I had my laptop and I had my lectures covered and basically nobody at work knew I was sick. Hmm. Like no one even knew hmm, that I was like in a hospital day and night for four days. Um, and I didn't want anyone to know and I didn't want anyone to come visit me except my spouse. And that, and now I read, that is a very male thing. It is a very, very male thing to be very close to your spouse and, you know, but I have had experiences where I got really sick once and I was involved with a theater production and somebody told everyone that I was sick and went to the hospital and they said, oh, he probably doesn't want me to say it, but blah, blah, blah. And it's true. I didn't want him to say it. And the reason why was because for the next three months, every time somebody saw me, like, oh, my God, how are you? Even when I was all better and I didn't want to talk about it, it, it sort of defined me for months and it drove me crazy. But next time I'm stuck in the hospital, I'm just going to suck it up and act more like a woman like I'm supposed to and invite people in to see me because it's going to be good. I mean, it's, it, this is where women act – they act better than men and it, they do things that are good for them. Yeah, because having – as you, you discussed, having those social connections, those social networks – can I'm sure aid in healing, right? They, they've shown that with like the breast cancer. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, breast cancer studies on women who um, have rated their social interactions as very high. The quality and the quantity of their social interactions mm-hmm. have uh, longer survivorship, so their morbidity and mortality rates, which morbidity is how sick you are, mortality is whether or not you die, that are lower than women who rate them as their social networks as as lower, right? So. There is something to be said about, you know, it, like a lot of people for many years was like, oh, you know, happiness can't influence your well-being. Well, it absolutely can. And certainly with the data that you said that shows these social interactions are important right. for our health. And, and women are women tend to have um, a more intimate and intense relationships. And men have usually a very intimate relationship with a spouse and mm-hmm. then um, a lot of many, many peripheral relationships that don't get a whole lot of energy. So it's really not uncommon to ask a guy like an adult male who's your best friend and they'll mention somebody they haven't talked to in two years <laughs> you know <laughs> and yeah. women are less likely to do that yeah well my my husband actually doesn't have a cell phone well he does but i think it's dead he never checks it okay. the batteries died and i don't think he, he's on facebook maybe once every few months mm-hmm. he's not on any social media he questions my my use of it at times because i am much more on social media yeah um yeah which i think is is born about with the data right so is given all this conversation about you know the difference between face-to-face and online social media like do you recommend that our listeners stop listening to us (laughs) should they come in and have a conversation turn it off off, come here right now we're in the ckcu studio yes yes we need to have a live audience only and it's going to be the first (laughs) radio show that is not recorded (laughs) Um, well, I, you know, I, I think that making things social when you can, as I mentioned, is a really important thing. And, uh, you know, one idea for, um, like, listening to radio shows and podcasts, for example, is my wife will – we used to have these um, uh, podcast get-togethers. So we had a bunch of friends who listened to uh, pod, This American Life or Radio Lab or something, some of the shows that are apl- appeal to a broad audience. We might have four or five people over, serve – serve coffee and we just all listen and anyone can say pause at any moment and, and discuss and, you know, we just make us make a social event out of it. You know, I think that's, um, that's a great way to, uh, deal with some kind of like consuming only Mm. like Mm non-interactive, what's normally a non-interactive thing. You try to make it interactive. So, uh, yeah, we're going to encourage the audience to 
uh, having Minding the Brain Party for the next episode. Yeah. And send us an invite. <laughs> <laughs> Finding the Brain is edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by CKCU, Carleton University's Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences, and made possible in part by metabolism, allowing our hosts to turn lentils and peanut butter cups into podcast episodes. Theme music is Plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com. (laughs) 